there's a point when you're climbing those trees where you pop out of it all and suddenly the whole world changes yeah everything just vanishes and you know it's it's just gorgeous to look out over the canopy and you see the monkeys and the birds and the, you know also you can see the blue sea and everything else That was the voice of National Geographic photographer Charlie Hamilton James. Any of you who have picked up the February issue of National Geographic magazine have been greeted with images of rainforest wildlife so stunningly captured it almost looks surreal. Today, a conversation with the photojournalist behind those images. My name is Lucy Kleiner, and this is The Nature Dilemma, a podcast series by Osa Conservation dedicated to, inspired by, and created in the last wild places on Earth. These stories help us understand the dilemma between humanity and the planet humanity depends on. We'll tap into the knowledge of experts around the world and take you to some of the most pristine and vulnerable wildernesses on Earth. I'm reporting from the Osa Conservation Biological Station, surrounded by Costa Rica's ancient rainforests. Join me as I look for answers from the top conservationists, scientists, and nature nerds around the world. I'm eager to introduce you to award-winning photojournalist, Charlie Hamilton James. Charlie specializes in issues concerning natural history, anthropology, and conservation as a whole. His work has taken him around the world, and he is among those most familiar with the planet's last wild places. Today, he's calling in from Kenya, where he's on assignment for National Geographic, making photos of the place where wildlife and tourism collide. How are you doing today, Charlie? I'm good. Thanks for having me. We're calling in from two of the sunniest and hottest places, I think, in the world, That's from right. southern Costa Rica to southern Kenya. As it should be. <laughs> And Charlie, you have a specifically intimate knowledge of the Osa Peninsula as well, um, where you came, lived, and worked alongside my team at Osa Conservation, shooting uh, the environmental efforts that are happening down here in our little sliver of the rainforest. This month, uh, Charlie's photos were published in National Geographic magazine, his story on the Osa Peninsula, and they are beautiful. Can you tell me a little bit about your time here on the peninsula? Uh, my big takeaway of Osa, apart from it being gorgeous and lovely, was that I'm too old to photograph rainforest stories anymore. <laughs> that's, what, that's, what, that's what I came away with. Um, no, it was, I mean, it was an eye-opener for me because um, my rainforest experience has always been in the Amazon. And, to, and you know, where you get this incredibly high diversity, but often low biomass, well, visible biomass, let's say. I mean, there it's all there. You just don't see it. Um, Costa Rica was a real eye-opener, Corcovado and Osa, because you do see it. And that, yeah, that was a, a, a big shock to me. And, uh, you know, and the diversity was extraordinary. It's particularly the cats, you know, to, to see how many cats are walking those paths by putting camera traps out on them was amazing. I've worked with um, both Ruth and Andy, who are very active members of Osa Conservation, uh, on previous story in, in Peru. So it was lovely to reconnect with them. Okay, 
quickly want to jump in here because in this episode, you are going to hear a lot about Andy and Ruth, so I want to provide some background. You've seen Andy's name before. He's a producer of The Nature Dilemma, but he's also a highly published ecologist and the executive director of Osa Conservation. As for Ruth, well, you'll learn more about her in just a moment. But yeah, no, I, I fell in love with Osa. And also, you know, when you're really hot and you've been bitten by mosquitoes all day and you're in a bad mood, you just go to the seaside. <laughs> You can't do that in the Amazon. You know, it's one of the most beautiful parts of being down there is the biostation. You're in the middle of the jungle and you are also right alongside that beautiful coast. I know, isn't that wonderful? And you can just go and cool off and chill out. And yeah, I loved it. And then you also, you can go to a pub and have some nice food and a beer <laughs> right next to the animals. Yeah, no, it's lovely. <laughs> Wait, what is, wait, can we circle back to your first comment? What the heck do you mean by you're too old oh, to I be just, photographing I, the rainforest? Yeah, okay. So I have a really weird relationship with rainforest. It, I find it extraordinary and wonderful, but I'm not, I'm, I've never really liked being in it. Um, I hardly believe it. No, you. I just, I, I, and as I get older, I like it less. Because you don't, you don't go to rainforest, you become part of it immediately. Because, you know, not only does the heat and the humidity overtake you, but everything wants to eat you um which you know i can cope with i've done years of it but i it, it it's a it's to me it's like being in a kettle full of mosquitoes it's <laughs> it's not it's i don't find it a relaxing experience that doesn't mean i haven't had amazingly relaxing moments and some of the most amazing moments of my life have been in rainforest but as an environment it's not one i would generally choose to be in it's very um restrictive exhausting place to to take photographs you're carrying lots of heavy equipment you're you know you're doing a lot of um physical work and it's i find it physically kind of draining to be under that pressure that you can't really escape and that's why Osa was kind of nice because you could you could as i said you could go and get in the sea and, and all the mosquito bites and all the heat and everything just vanishes the moment you do that but, you know, climbing trees, ah, I just felt my age this time. You know, I'm 47 now. And Andy and Ruth and I were climbing some of these big trees, you know, 100, 120 feet, whatever. And, I, you know, I just, I really felt it. I felt my age. And, you know, when I was doing that in my early 20s in Ecuador and Peru, yeah, it was just whatever. Now I'm just, oh, oh I've got to climb another tree. <laughs> I have to climb up into the beautiful canopy one more time. Oh, oh I'm not complaining about that. I'm just saying I'm just, uh, you know, unfit. <laughs> Put it like that. Well, tell me a little bit more about what it's like to be photographing specifically in the canopy. In the magazine, there's this beautiful shot of Ruth, who you mentioned. Mm. She's an indigenous botanist who's um, from the Andes of Peru, but now she's working on our team in Osa Conservation. Yeah. And you made this amazing photo of her in the canopy. And I think she's, she's sorting or collecting seeds. Yeah. Can you tell me about what it's like to be up there with all of that heavy camera gear at 47? Yeah, no. It's... <laughs> so when I was a cameraman, I used to carry a, a lot more. So now it's taking stills is lovely because it's only a little bit. Um, and we lit that, you know, I, Ruth and I were up in that tree. The sun was setting. It was a really gorgeous evening. And there was some, you know, mist and cloud rolling in on, you could see the, you know, the coast from there. And, you know, that is what's special about the rainforest because you're down in this sort of hot, humid darkness. And suddenly there's a point when you're climbing those trees where you pop out of it all. And suddenly the whole world changes and you've got this 
everything just vanishes and you know it's it's just gorgeous to look out over the canopy and you can see the monkeys and the birds and the you know and also you can see the blue sea and everything else yeah, I've I've known Ruth for 10 years she's so quiet and humble and meek yeah she's such a genius uh, when it comes to botany and we're really one of the most important neotropical botanists in the world I would say so to just you know I it, I owed it to Ruth for the amount of time and years I worked with her to to take a nice picture of her doing her 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 work, and so that was fun. And we, I think it's two flash guns we got up there and and lit it so we can just because the, the the key to to taking pictures like that is you want to you want to highlight and lift the subject off the background, and that's why we lit it in order to do that. Um, and it worked. I, I was really pleased. <laughs> Because often you've got these pictures in your head and you've got a situation like that and you you don't pull it off. But actually that that day we did pull it off. It was nice. And I love what you said about how you kind of owed it to Ruth to make that photo of her because after working alongside her, it's exactly what you just said. She's very quiet and meek, but you get her in her element and she's just this wealth of knowledge. And I feel like that's what you've you've done through a lot of photos of yours that I've seen is you get people in their element really sharing their story. And I just saw Ruth through a completely different light. Hmm. Now, I think, you know, I'm not a fan of a straight portrait. You know, when I'm doing an editorial assignment, I want the, if the, if the person is a subject, I want them doing what it is that they do. And that's, you know, it's not just me. That's, that's most people that, um, that do my job. And we, we want to see what the person does for a living. And, and Ruth is extraordinary because the thing she does is extraordinary. So she does climb these enormous trees to, to take seed samples. And, that, you know, most people in normal life, that's, that's an extraordinary thing she does. The fact that she has this amazingly cool disposition just makes it all the better, really, because I've, I haven't met a single person who hasn't worked with her and just thought she's such a, a cool person. So it's... <laughs> It's just Ruth. So no, I'm when we did, I did it with Andy. Actually, we went up to take Andy's photo a couple of weeks later, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just as fun. You know, I'm sure it's for his Tinder profile, not getting the magazine. But... <laughs> 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 but he wanted his portrait taken, and I owed it to him. I hope you made him shave before he went up there. No, no, he, he was full redneck. It was, oh, like, it was like a duck, duck dynasty shoot in a tree. <laughs> Um, when you're up there in the canopy making those photos, how long does it take? I don't hang around because, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a portrait of Ruth working. But there's only so many times she's going to pick those seeds up. And, um, you know, I've got to get her doing her thing. So, yeah, not long. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the, the pictures I'm most well known for are people with monkey, monkeys on their heads in the Amazon. Those pictures take 20 seconds, you know, under a minute. There's no staging. There's nothing. It's like. Um, we did one that went on the front cover of the magazine and this kid literally just walked out of his house and I said, oh, stand there, I'll take your picture. <laughs> you know, it's over in in seconds. It's not some long, drawn-out portrait experience. It's a very quick um, moment where I've got to, you know, grab grab this thing that I'm seeing while it's there and, you know, not turn it into some sort of um, portrait session where I'm, you know, trying to create something that's not real because that kid did have that monkey on his head as he walked out of his, his front door. My job is just to capture that 
moment? As a budding photographer who absolutely cannot grasp catching the moment yet, I try to make a photo of somebody. I'm like, wait, can can you smile again? Can you can you open your eyes this time? <laughs> it's it's a skill. Obvious, you've crafted that skill through your entire journey to become this world-renowned conservation photographer. Can you talk to me a little bit about your path towards becoming who you are today? Yeah, and you know, I, I all I wanted to do as a kid was just photograph and film animals. I wasn't really at all interested in people. I had no interest in people. And really my interest in people came, uh, actually Andy and I, Dan and Manu, made a TV series for BBC Two called I Bought a Rainforest. Over a year I spent six months um, working with people and that kind of triggered an interest in not just them but that intersect between um, humans and the environment and with a with a kind of attempt at a, a new understanding for me on on how that those two things intersect I enjoyed doing it I enjoyed this sort of new discipline of trying to photograph people and then geographic gave me a story on Manu National Park in Peru and I very quickly had to take uh photos of people at the level that the geographic work set so um i yeah it was a big learning curve to suddenly start shooting people a lot and i really enjoyed it you know i don't the kind of work i prefer is is, is still that people environment mix rather than just straight wildlife or rather than just straight people I i like to do people working in the environment doing something was there a a portrait photo of it with a person as a subject that kind of shifted it for you where you were like, okay, now this is, this is something that I love and I want to do. Or did it, was it a gradual, just kind of, we need you to make these photos. So take your wildlife skills and incorporate them. No, I mean, there's this, the first decent photo I took of a human being was a little girl called Yoena, again, with a monkey on her head. Every day she would take that monkey for a swim in the river, this tiny little saddleback tamarind and it really just hated it i mean to her it was a toy but this poor animal just hated it hated swimming and she'd throw it in the river and it would you know it'd just scream its head off and swim back and climb back onto her head and you know this she had such oh. attitude yoena did and she just i asked we asked her because i can't speak very good spanish or magic Gengo as she is uh, anyway we asked her uh, if we could take a picture for three or four days and she's no and eventually she says, okay, you can take my picture. So I, you know, I got in the river and took this picture of her with a monkey on her head. And it was one of those serendipitous moments because um, the lens I was shooting with and the way I was shooting the lens meant that really at like two millimeters is going to be in focus. And the rest of it's going to be gradually going out of focus from that two millimeter plane. And which means that, uh, well, what, the, the reason I was lucky was because the monkey's eyes and her eyes were were exactly aligned as the monkey was sat on her head. So both sets of eyes were pinned shut. Um, and I didn't plan that. That was just pure serendipity because the, the final picture was um, was really the best portrait or person photo I'd ever taken. And that kind of really kick-started me into shooting, shooting people in that way. And then they were going to put it on the front cover of the Geographic. And they decided not to, and they put another picture on it. It was, I think, the worst-selling cover in three years or something. <laughs> and every time I see every time I see Susan, the editor, she apologizes. I'm really sorry. I wish I'd put that picture on. Anyway, a few years, three years later, they put a little boy with a monkey on his head on the cover, so it was all fine. <laughs>
I was going to say, you eventually got a similar one on the cover for yeah, sure. Yeah, and I think what was interesting about that, that series is people thought, you know, this is kind of some staged trope that, you know, I'd go around and put monkeys on people's heads. And actually, it's not. I mean, what the, the way it happens is, uh, you know, the guys go out hunting, they kill a monkey, it's, you know, a female with a baby clinging to it because um, baby monkeys cling to their mums. Um, and then, the you know, the mother is eaten. And the the baby monkey is is kept as a a toy, really a pet. Um, they grow up in the, certainly that the little boy with the monkey that was a, a black bearded saki that was in uh, eastern Brazil with the Awa people, you know. And they they have you know the monkeys have their own hammocks in the in their houses. They really are part of the family. So um, the monkeys have their own hammocks. Yeah, certainly with the hour and not with the Machiganga in Peru, but it's basically the, the, the baby monkey has to cling to hair because that's what it's used to. So they, it's mainly little girls, but occasionally little boys have these monkeys just living in their hair until they grow up. And, you know, so, so that's why wow. so I shot this series of pictures because, you know, certainly with the hour in Brazil, everyone, you know, You'd be chatting to a, a, I remember chatting to a lady, she was just weaving a basket and I suddenly noticed that her hair was moving. You know, just, she's just going about a day and this thing just lives in her hair. So you, you brought up this point about, you're seeing these like these very intimate moments. You're, you're spending days, if not weeks with these people. And you, you said yourself, you don't speak the best Spanish. How do you go about breaking through that that ice, that shield that can come when you're going in not only as a tall white male, but a tall white male with a massive camera and some big lenses and some gear. How do you get these beautiful, intimate photos? I remember there's one cam or one picture and it's a pullout in the National Geographic magazine from a few years back where there's these women in these hammocks and these children running everywhere. And it's oh, yeah. such a intimate, natural moment. How, how do you do that? Uh, everyone just gets bored of me. I mean, it's <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's, so you go into a community for the first time um, where, you know, everyone's got their ways of ingratiating themselves themselves. Cause that's essentially what you want to do is get to the point where they're bored of you taking their picture. So they stop reacting. And that really that generally happens really quickly because um, I've got a few sort of techniques that I do. What I want them to know and realize is that I'm no, I'm no threat. Uh, I'm stupid. I'm I'm fun, <laughs> and I just you know I just don't care about anything. So my main aim is to get that part of me across to them as fast as I can. Um, and generally, I I mean I so I have this app on my phone. Everyone gets really cross me when I say this, but I don't care because it's fun. Oh, I'm excited. Um, I have this app on my phone where you line people up and it superimposes a missile going into them and it's blowing them up. So what I do is I get all the kids together and I line them up. You film them for like 30 seconds or standing there and then, you know, you stop it and the, the app does its thing for 10, 15 seconds. And then you, you, you play it back and then all the kids are standing there and this missile just comes in and it blows them up in a big fireball. And so I show the kids this and they just think it's the funniest thing they've ever seen. I've done this all over the world. And then what happens normally is then the dads all want to come and have a look. So the dads all come up. And the women are usually, certainly in indigenous communities, usually more reserved. 
but eventually come in to have a look. And within, you know, 10 minutes, the whole village is just, we're all having fun and giggling and laughing and asking around with my phone. People make complaints, or, you know, should you, you know, introduce these fragile communities to this technology? Well, they're just human beings. (laughs) It's not like half of them haven't got phones themselves. (laughs) So we get this, we have this kind of idea of um, preserving culture based on our idea of preserving culture, not you know, not what they want. They, you know, so many of these remote communities actually interface so much more than we think. Um, so yeah, no, I, I kind of do that and I hang out, um, in Brazil, in Brazil, when I was shooting the hour, they would all have a bath in the river at six o'clock every morning, like 60 people and all their monkeys and tortoises. So, I would just be wading around in my, you know, pants and a t-shirt taking pictures and no one cared. And they just got bored of me. So, yeah. Um, You just blended in with the tortoises and monkeys at that point. Yeah. I mean, I I am a massive, great guy wandering around and often, you know, babies will steep me and start crying and, um, (laughs) No, it's true. <laughs> he says that with a smile on his face, by the way. No, it's true. Babies will see me and cry. He's smiling so hard. <laughs> no, I, really, within 24 hours, 48 hours, we're all just hanging out. So, And it's fun. You said one of your techniques is to make them think that you're stupid. Do you have a special uh, approach to that? I remember photographing a... Uh, it was actually a really desperately poor family on a mountain in Mozambique for a story I was doing on Gorongosa National Park and the mum was cooking dinner and it was a really stale fragile and everyone seemed to be having fun on the approach and then we turned up and it was everything went a lot more friction in the air so I just started you know asking around and I said to Jen my assistant I'm gonna make an idiot of myself for half an hour now so I just start fooling around the kids and falling over and you can see the mum start smiling, you know, and then within half an hour, it's like, this guy's an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) But it took me, it took me a long time to build up the confidence to go into communities um, early on. Because, you know, people just, you know, you basically got entire village just staring at you thinking you're just this weird looking thing. And and there's, there's lots of about traveling and, um, that I still find awkward, um, just because of my size and shape. Um, but the community stuff I'm, I'm much more used to now. It's just kind of, it's part of my work and I, you know, I enjoy it. And it seems like your work in all aspects pulls you there so often. I feel like through what I've seen of your work, you've kind of developed this concept of conservation that may oppose what a lot of people think of as conservation. Like you just mentioned a bit back of these people, these tribes in these native rural areas are hunting monkeys and they're eating them. Mm -hmm. A trained conservationist may look at that and say, well, that's the bad guy because they're hunting the monkeys that we're working so hard to protect. Can you talk to me about this kind of, I think you refer to it as your journey of understanding of conservation and this concept of the good guys versus the bad guys. 
Yeah, I, I could. I mean, I always say the same thing. Africa, you can summarize that whole concept in, in a really, to me, what is a really stark, obvious um, statement. So in Africa, white people hunt, black people poach. And if you look at it, that is the narrative. And if and you transport that narrative around the world to different places, different environments, you realize how absurd the idea of us versus them is. You know, I spent a long time going across the Amazon covering um, illegal logging, illegal gold mining, cattle ranching and everything else. And what I met were some really nice, decent human beings that did often did stuff that they weren't proud of in order to survive. Um, they had a greater depth of understanding, knowledge, um, spiritual connection with the environment far greater than I did. Yet they did something, you know, I, I thought at, certainly at first was bad and offensive to the environment, something I would never do. There's almost narratives where poor people are more dispensable than than rich westerners and it's just simply not true and i think we subconsciously apply these narratives in conservation all the time you know we have this idea of di this dichotomy thinking where you know you're doing something that's apparently bad in the environment therefore you're a bad person my understanding of that is wrong what i'm interested in doing in my photography and it's the same when i go into indigenous communities i'm interested in normalizing human beings because if you normalize people if you show that we have uh, you know if, if we show we have shared problems you know the problems that we face at home in the uk or the us are actually shared by people that live in these very remote communities we see a commonality and the commonality is what bonds us particularly problems, actually. The commonality of our problems is, is a good way of bonding us. And that creates an empathy, I think, with a viewer in the West that perhaps doesn't understand things in the way I do because I get to see it. Um, and so what I'm interested in, you know, whether it's illegal loggers or whether it's um, indigenous communities, is, is presenting the similarities we all have the commonalities we share, the problems we share, because then, you know, a reader uh, in Wisconsin can realize that they have something in common with Hurani Indian in Ecuador. <laughs> and and that, that, that person then becomes inherently more interesting than, than to them because they realize, oh, wow, this is another human being just like me. We share the same problems. And I think that's really important because if you look at the way... Um, yeah, it's called them the bad guys in the Amazon, the, the illegal loggers, the gold miners, have all been presented historically. Um, the narrative is always the same. These are the bad guys. If you look at um, tribes in the Amazon, these are, these people are exotic and everything else. Um, and, and it's not true. They're just, they're just people. Um, and I'm, you know, hell-bent on covering them in that, in that way. These are just people. They're just like you and me. They live different lives but they have they are human beings often the same set of problems we want to bring people you know the, the more we can bring people together the more value con it has for conservation you know going to you know, often sit on you know the discovery channel or whatever you go to a community in the amazon and the, the whole narrative is based on making these people as different to us as we can possibly do exaggerating all the differences that achieves to me absolutely nothing that just is a same old washed up narrative about how difficult it was for the presenter to get there. You know, it's just like the journalist is a hero. It's 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 rubbish. What's interesting is 
wow, these people live miles, thousand miles away from us. But oh, look, they've still got the same problems. Can you tell me about the time when that bad guy versus good guy narrative kind of crumbled for you? Yeah, I, I, I spent a couple of weeks in a, in a, in a logging town in, uh, on the Rondona Acre border, which is the Western Amazon, Brazilian Amazon, um, and really the, the epicenter of slash and burnt cattle ranching. You know, which is what's responsible for all these fires we're seeing every year in the Amazon. It's an incredibly destructive practice. And, you know, just to put it in context, you're taking uh, the world's most biodiverse ecosystem, which is a carbon sink, um, you know, sucking in carbon from the atmosphere, producing oxygen. You're chopping it all down. You're putting cows on it. So you're releasing all the carbon, then you're putting cows on it. You know, what is, I, I can't remember the exact statistic of how much uh, worse methane is, for instance, as a greenhouse gas and carbon dioxide. I think it's 84 times. I can't remember exactly. Okay. If you didn't catch that, Charlie just said that methane gas is 84 times more potent of a greenhouse gas than CO2. I looked it up, and unfortunately, that fact is true. 84 times more potent. And according to the World Wildlife Fund, cattle ranching accounts for 80% of current deforestation throughout the Amazon. So you can't conceive of a more stupid thing to do to the planet and cut rainforest down for cattle. So I go and live in this town with a guy called Dino and his family. Dino is a slash and burn cattle rancher. Um, and this town is like a frontier town that the police won't go to because it's so dangerous apparently and this is yeah we went you know we and just we kind of pulled up we were filming bbc show we, we pulled up outside the town and the crew turned around to me because i was the host of it and said right we're going into this town they told me all the dangers and i'm like oh, christ are we really doing it anyway i spent two some of the nicest people i've ever met in my life <laughs> we had an absolute blast and it it was so much they were so nice and I learned more about being a decent human being from Dino and his sons and his wife and his daughters and than I you know, really ever learned from anyone in my life. It was a phenomenal experience. And, and you know, I, we filmed them cutting down the rainforest, burning it, killing cows, slaughtering, you know, the, the really brutal reality of normal life to them. Um, but no, absolutely completely changed my understanding of certainly rainforest conservation. You know, standing next to a, a huge Brazil nut tree and Dino slapping it saying, oh, I love this tree. I'd never cut this down. I'm going to leave it so that your sons can see it. Yeah, it's wonderful. So tell me what it's like to stare a burning rainforest in the face. When I look at your images, I'm, I'm picturing this one image that's won a lot of awards and it's kind of, you have a beautiful sunset in the background and then the foreground is just this one burning tree and around it is just desolate, burnt rainforest. And when I look at that, all I see is destruction, but it sounds like maybe you see something more. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's no, there's, yeah I'm not denying that it's a major, massive problem. It is. Um, no, it's horrific wandering around burning forest setting fire to i mean i didn't they were trying to get me to light it i'm like i'm not lighting it i'm filming you guys doing it. i'm a journalist i'm not doing it myself yeah an absolutely horrible thing to watch and experience not just physically but you know the, the emotion of watching a forest burn like that 
But actually, that with the picture you're talking about that evening was just Gavin, the director, and I wandering through this decimated, smoldering, like apocalyptic landscape. It was, it was horrific. Um, but my takeaway from it was, do I blame the people for doing that? And the answer is no, I don't blame those people for doing that. They're just doing what they need to do to survive. Um, how, the issues surrounding it, how do we stop it? Everything else are much bigger issues than those individual people. Um, and uh, the other thing about me is, is that often um, I, 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 I can just, I'm, I'm working, you know? I can see horrific things. I can, you know, the number of elephant, dead elephants I photographed being chopped up. I don't, I don't feel anything while I'm doing it because I'm working. Um, that night walking through the smoldering landscape, yeah, I did feel it that night because it was, it was, in, you know, it was in my lungs. But emotionally as well, it was a really uh, horrible place to be. And it, and it was a really horrible thing to see and experience. I, I, I'm glad I did. You know, I've worked on a lot of forest fires in the Amazon now. Um, and it's always the same, but, but sometimes, yeah, as I say, sometimes the, the, you've got to flick the switch, you're working. You don't have time to sit around feeling sorry for yourself because this is so horrible. You know, you can do that when you're back home in the hotel or wherever. I can imagine that mastering flipping that switch probably took some time. But it really seems to pay off. I mean, you have a way of taking all of these different narratives and putting all of them on the same level. And it's not just with humans. You do that with wildlife as well. Can you tell me about how you approach wildlife photography? I don't, I don't very often go out with my camera and see what I can get. <laughs> so I go out with my camera and know what I want. And I think that's really important because, uh, okay, so I'm doing a, I'm actually shooting a whole issue of National Geographic at the moment on the Serengeti. It was originally a big story, and because of COVID, it became a whole issue. Um, now, I've got to go out into the Serengeti, which has been, you know, as far as wildlife photography goes, nowhere else on Earth has been photographed as much as the Serengeti. Um, my job is to go there and create a set of images that are unique, um, and not in a sort of faddish way, but in a way that complements the environment they're taken in. So I've really got to go to town thinking, all right, how can I create a set of images that are gonna wow the reader in a place they've seen more wildlife pictures than anywhere else in the world, and how are these pictures gonna complement the landscape, the environment, and the story? Um, and so I tackle photography like that. It's a very, to me, it's all, it's a very strategic, uh, it's a lot of thinking. It's a lot of working out before I go out in the field and start doing it. Um, and it's usually stylistic, and it's very rarely with a long lens, which is what wildlife photographers tend to use, a big telephoto lens. I do do that, but I tend to try and involve the, the landscape and the animal in the same picture because I'm a storyteller, and my job is to take single images that tell a bigger story than, than a single portrait of an animal would. We tend to treat Africa's national parks, in fact, most national parks, this idea of um, uh, preservation, this kind of old colonial idea of preservation, which we cling to. And I, I kind of always think we treat them like these big diorama museum exhibits. So I've actually gone and shot them like that, um, which is 
a really weird way of shooting, but looks really cool, actually. I mean, you know, lighting lion, wild lions with studio lights and shooting them <laughs> in, at sunset with studio lights. And it's, and it, it's, an, it's actually a really cool look. But people look at them and actually say, wow, it looks like a museum diorama, which is exactly what I want them to do. That's how I do wildlife photography. I do it a bit differently. I use a lot of light. Uh, everyone, people, a lot of people get worried. You know, aren't you disturbing animals with light? They don't take the blindest bit of notice of light. So generally. And is that the same approach you use when you're photographing in the tropical rainforest? Like, for example, there's this photo in the magazine that just came out um, on the story on the Osa Peninsula. And it's of this beautiful puma and there's light kind of across its face and the puma's looking right at the camera. Is that the same approach or is that something, do you have to completely adjust based on your surroundings? Yeah, the, the picture of the puma was uh, taken on a forest trail. You know, a lot of animals just in rainforests, it's so hard to walk through, they just stick to forest trails. Um, so we put a camera trap which is a kind of remote camera with a sensor and flash guns. Um, we put that on the trail and left it. There seem to be like four pumas that regularly walk that trail. Um, and that camera we put really close and it was right next to the camera when it went off. And you can see, you know, it's turning, looking straight into the camera. And my editor wrote to me the other day, is this puma reacting badly to the light? And I said, no, because pumas don't take any notice of flash guns at all. Um, it's actually re it's reacting to the click of the camera. So yeah, it's looking straight into the camera. It's a kind of cool picture. I put it on the National Geographic Instagram feed. Never thought it was fake. Um, and I always love it when that happens. <laughs> it seems to happen a lot with your images. People think that you're fake. You're photoshopping it. Yeah, I get. I do get it a lot. They're certainly going to think that when Serengeti comes out because it's because I like things, you know, and I like things to look a certain way. And yeah, they people. They don't believe they're real. You know, I'll, I'll some, occasionally I'll join into the, the threads where I'm being accused of Photoshop. And, and uh, it's always quite good fun. Because even when I say it's not, they don't believe me sometimes. <laughs> you recently put an image on your Instagram. I, I didn't think it was fake just because I know you and your work. But it was definitely jarring because you don't see it naturally. This one was underwater. It was of an otter eating a fish. And in your caption, you mentioned it was taken with camera trap and you included crocodile clips and condoms as part of the equipment you used to shoot that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I like doing really, really technical wildlife photos with, you know, I call it, you know, duct tape and a leather. Um, I engineer everything myself in the most simple possible way. Um, and I like doing it like that. It all falls, it's a, so frustrating. Everything falls apart, and, you know, but... When it works, you can get these really cool pictures um, just by with a little bit of invention. It's all about getting the camera close to the animal. And what is that draw to to camera trapping? Like you just said, it can be so frustrating when it falls apart. W what keeps you going back to camera traps? Because I've been on the back end of this as an assistant and setting up camera traps. And the photos are beautiful, but it is a lot of work and a lot of trial and error. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what keeps you going is opening the back of the camera and knowing that you might not be disappointed, but you probably are going to be disappointed. And I think, you know, they're, they're really glitchy. Certainly the ones we use as a camera, you know, there's a proper DSLR Nikon camera. It's got strobes on it. It's got infrared beam. Um, and in the rainforest, they, everything's dying all the time. You know, the flash guns are dying or the batteries are running out. Or so it's it's 
really um, annoying to do it. But when you get those pictures, you know, we got Andy and I got one of an ocelot walking across a, a fallen tree over the, the stream there in Osa. And it's, you know, when it works, it's phenomenal because you can get the camera, you know, three feet, two feet from the animal and get the whole background in because you're shooting on a wide angle lens. And that's why it's such a, to me, such a great discipline. Um, it's very difficult, requires a lot of field craft and, and to get the lighting right, it's very difficult. But when it works, you know, it's phenomenal. Well, hopefully you don't get too old for camera trap photos like you claim you are for canopy images. <laughs> okay, Charlie, thanks again. I want to wrap up our conversation today by asking you to look forward. What can we expect to see from you in the coming months? So, okay, so the National Geographic Serengeti issue will come out October, I think. Yeah, that's the whole issue. I'm, I, I could pretend that I'm humbled by that, but I'm really proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone does this thing on social media, they, this humble bragging, and I'm like, wow, I got a whole issue. <laughs> so I'm just really, 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 like, smug and happy. <laughs> But only to myself, uh, and obviously all of the listeners. And um, <laughs> no, so no, it was by mistake. It wasn't on my merit. Um, it was because the COVID happened. And anyway, I'm very lucky. So we're doing that, and I'm finishing my sea otter story. And I'm finishing my. I'm writing an autobiography, which comes out next year, I think, with Harper Collins. And okay, Charlie, uh, can I interrupt you quickly? Andy, who we've mentioned a lot, my boss, he told me. Yeah the title of that autobiography you're writing and i don't believe it <laughs> so i'm gonna have to hear it from you before i can actually include it on the podcast let me just caveat this because okay lots of people in my profession have written autobiographies and they're always written they may never tell the truth so i thought right i'm gonna tell the truth <laughs> about wildlife filmmaking so it's called i can't eat my guinea pig i've had too much cocaine <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, true story but uh, I, I don't anymore. It was uh, uh, my youth, let's say. And, uh, but it was, it was, um, it's an interesting story. <laughs> <laughs> but I basically, I've written a book of all of the things that no one else has had the guts to put in there. <laughs> it's really naughty. Uh, Oh, yeah. I'm, it's been fun writing it. Sometimes I sit there giggling to myself, saying, I can't believe I'm putting this in, but it's kind of fun. It's actually quite a, um, an in-depth uh, dissection of modern conservation and my understanding of it. And it's, it's, it's very naughty, it's very silly, but it's also very, very moving, I hope, and serious. Wonderful. Well, Charlie, I really appreciate your time once again. Thanks for calling in all the way from Kenya. As we sign off, where can people who are interested and want to learn more about you and the work you're doing, where can people find you and support your work? So I tend to do everything on Instagram. I do a lot of silly things on it, which is fun. It's an outlet for stupidity. Uh, I'm on uh, C. Hamilton James. Chamilton James is my Instagram handle. Wonderful. So give Chamilton James a follow if you want more of the, the naughty version of himself, as he says. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, good to speak to you. Yeah, you as well, Charlie. I really appreciate your time. Good luck in the Serengeti. Thank you. Have fun. Cheers. Once again, that was award-winning National Geographic magazine photographer, Charlie Hamilton James. 
to see his work on the Osa Peninsula, grab a copy of the February issue of Nat Geo or find the link in our show notes. While you're there, please rate and review The Nature Dilemma. Your feedback means so much and we want to hear from you. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Once again, my name is Lucy Kleiner, and this is The Nature Dilemma, brought to you by OSA Conservation.